Pushkin. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The greatest game of basketball anyone has ever played was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, March 2nd, 1962. Here's the big fourth quarter, and everybody's thinking how many's Wolf got to get. He's got 69 gone in. Here's the pass to him. He's got another one. Cold, rainy night. Just over 4,000 people in the stands. Philadelphia Warriors versus the New York Knicks. When the Sherrier Arizona have the good shot, they're taking it, but mostly they're setting up the big man. The star of the Warriors was a man named Wilt Chamberlain. No doubt you've heard of him. Seven foot one, 275 pounds. For sheer physical presence, there has probably never been anyone like Wilt. There are lots of seven-footers who play basketball who are basically on the court purely because they're seven feet tall. They're clumsy and ungainly. Chamberlain was not like that. He was as big as an oak tree and as graceful as a ballet dancer. That season, 1961 to 1962, he ended up averaging more than 50 points a game. That record will never be broken. So, March 2nd, Wilt was hungover. He'd been out all night with a woman he picked up at a bar. That's classic Wilt, too. He would later claim to have slept with 20,000 women in his life. And when he said that, lots of people did the math and said there was no way that was possible, given the fact that there were only 24 hours in a day and Wilt only lived to the age of 63. But even the skeptics were like, well, maybe it's 10,000 or 8,000. It was an argument over whether it was an unbelievably high number or merely an incredibly high number.
man of the league has 92 points. Garen makes the first foul. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, where every week we re-examine the forgotten and the misunderstood. This week's episode is about Wilt Chamberlain's most famous game. Wilt's got the ball. He's gone up. He shoots. It's good. So back to the game in question. Chamberlain makes his first five shots and has 23 points at the end of the first quarter. At halftime, he has 41 points. No one's thinking history just yet. But then, by the end of the third quarter, he has 69 points, and he keeps going and going and going. A hundred points the most anyone has ever scored in a professional basketball game. And here's the most incredible thing about it. He shot brilliantly from the foul line. 28, he made 28 out of 30 30 or 32, yeah. Out of 32. That's Rick Barry speaking. He was a contemporary of Chamberlain's, also a Hall of Famer, an absolutely unstoppable scorer. I met him at his condo in South Carolina, where he lives part of the year so he can follow his son Canyon, who plays basketball for the College of Charleston. Barry is 72, six foot eight inches tall, barrel chest, legs that look like he had special extensions put on them, and that thing that great athletes have and never seem to lose, which is that they kind of glide across the floor, like they have wheels on. A big part of this episode is about Barry, but other people too, because although this sounds like it's going to be a show about basketball, the truth is it's not. It's a show about good ideas and why they have such difficulty spreading. But for the moment, back to Wilt Chamberlain. Chamberlain makes it. He's made 28 out of his 32 shots from the free throw line, 87.5%. The reason that's incredible is that when Chamberlain came into the NBA, he was a horrendous free throw shooter, the worst. Here was a man who could excel at virtually every physical feat under the sun, who could score at will with two and sometimes three defenders draped all over his body. But put him all alone, 15 feet from the basket, and he was hopeless. He was shooting 40% from the free throw line. That's terrible. But this season, Chamberlain changes tactics. He starts to shoot his foul shots underhanded. He doesn't release the ball up by his forehead. He holds the ball between his knees and flicks it towards the basket from a slight crouch. And all of a sudden, he's a pretty good free throw shooter. He gets up to more than 60%. And that special night in Hershey, Pennsylvania, he's an incredible free throw shooter. Chamberlain on the line, foul shot up in the air. He has 84. He makes 28 free throws the most anyone has ever made in NBA history. What Rick Barry will tell you is that shooting underhanded is simply a better way to make foul shots. And he knows that because he was one of the greatest foul shooters of all time, maybe the greatest. I missed 10 in one season and 9 in another, in the whole season. To put that in perspective, LeBron James, the greatest player of the current basketball generation, typically misses about 150 free throws a season. Rick Barry would miss 9 or 10. I think I shot 93.5 or something and 94.7, something like that. And Rick Barry 
only shot underhanded. From a physics standpoint, it's it's a much better way to shoot. Less things that can go wrong, less things that you have to worry about repeating properly in order for it to be successful. But the other thing is, is that who walks around like this? Yeah, with their hands in the this air. This is not a natural position. Yeah. When I shoot underhanded free throws, where are my arms? Yeah. Hanging straight down the way they are normally. And so I'm totally and completely relaxed. It's not in a situation where I have to worry about my muscles getting tense or tight. And then the shot itself, it's a much softer shot. So many of my shots, even if they're a little off, they hit so nice and soft and they'll still fall in the, the basket. Bounce. Much softer touch. Yeah. And so you, you, you have a little bit more margin for error. Some of those shots that are a little bit offline have a much better opportunity of going into the basket than when you shoot overhand. So Wilt Chamberlain switches to a better shooting technique. It pays off in the greatest basketball game ever played. He's playing the way that Rick Barry proved basketball players ought to play. Then something incredible happens. Wilt Chamberlain stops shooting underhanded, and he goes back to being a terrible foul shooter. Let's think about what he did for a moment. Chamberlain had a problem. He tested out a possible solution. The solution worked, and all of a sudden, he's fixed his biggest weakness as a player. This is not a trivial matter. If you're a basketball player and you can't hit your free throws, you're an incredible liability to your team, particularly at the end of close games. The other side simply fouls you every time you touch the ball because they know you'll miss your free throw and they'll get the ball back. If you can't hit your foul shots, it means you can't be used in a tight game. You know what Chamberlain's coach said to him? If you were a 90% shooter, we might never lose. You, you got to know him quite well. I got to know him. You know, and I, I just joked with him and just you know, said, your technique was terrible. I mean, but, I mean, had you stuck with it, I mean, there's no telling what he would have done. I mean, the numbers he would have put up would have been insane because the only way they defended him was to foul him. Chamberlain had every incentive in the world to keep shooting free throws underhanded. And he didn't. I think we understand cases where people don't do what they ought to do because of ignorance. This is not that. This is doing something dumb, even though you are fully aware that you're doing something dumb. By the way, there have been countless players like Chamberlain. Players who could have been transcendent, devastating, if only they had been open to taking foul shots a different way. Take Shaquille O'Neal. Up there with Wilt Chamberlain as one of the greatest NBA centers of all time, but an absolutely horrendous free throw shooter. Barry tried to reason with him once. You, you, oh, you actually talked to Shaquille? Oh, I tried to get Shaq to change. Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal, and I tried to get him to do it. He said, forget, I'd rather shoot zero than shoot underhanded. And I'm just fascinated by that. I don't understand it. Yeah. No, the difference is, if Shaq was an 80% free throw shooter, he becomes the go-to guy on the court as opposed to go to the bench guy. <laughs> I mean, you change the dynamic of the game. No one shoots underhanded. Not even Barry's teammates followed his lead. People who saw him shoot that way every day and never miss. One guy, One only, George Johnson, my teammate with the Warriors. He was, he, I think he was like 48, 50%, something like that. And I worked with him for one season. I didn't get to stay with him. He didn't get the technique down as, like, as much as I'd like it. But I think eventually, a season or two later, I think George actually shot 80%. I can actually look it up. It'd be interesting to see what he did. I'll get George Johnson's stats here. Let me see. George Johnson's Sorry, stats. I didn't, I didn't get that. Okay. Stats for George Johnson. 
NBA. Here are George Johnson stats from the 2015 NFL season. NFL. <laughs> wrong guy. Wrong season. Let me get. Uh, but anyway, we'll look it up. It's it's interesting. I think. But what about on your on your high school team? Did anyone follow? No, you oh no, team? nobody. No, I've only had one guy ever come to me. An NBA guy came to me. I won't tell you his name, but he came to me, asked me to work with him. I did it. I worked with him. I had him shooting really well, and he never had the nerve to go back and do it when he Can't went back. Can't tell me his name. No, I don't want to tell his name. It's not fair to him. I don't want to say his name. It's not fair to him. Like it's some kind of dark, shameful secret. College basketball is no different. Out of the thousands of college basketball players today, there are just two who shoot underhanded. One is a Nigerian-American who plays for Louisville, called Chinanu Anuaku. The other is Canyon Barry, who plays for the College of Charleston, and who, in case you missed this earlier, happens to be Rick Barry's son. In other words, there are only two conditions under which people will try the underhanded free throw. One, if their family is from another continent, and two, if they're an offspring of Rick Barry. Anyway, do you want to just quickly describe like where we are and what we're doing? That's my producer, Jacob Smith. He hung out with some players on the Columbia University women's basketball team and tried to get them to shoot underhanded. Our theory was, maybe this is just a dumb man's thing. Maybe women are more rational when they're on the court. So we are in Columbia's basketball gym, and we are going to compare overhand shooting to underhand shooting. Okay, here goes. That's Era Talkov, a junior on the team. She missed her first try. I, want, I feel like you could bend in the knee a little more than that. that. <laughs> then she makes the next two shots, her first two ever, okay. shooting underhanded. But Jacob couldn't get any of the Columbia players interested in switching over. Here's Sarah Mead, a senior point guard. Ever since we were young, we were taught to shoot it overhand. And, you know, as kids, you kind of play around with the idea of a granny shot or underhand. But, yeah, I'm not sure we've ever taken it seriously. She calls it a granny shot, a shot used by one of the greatest players ever to play the game. Women are as bad as men. We like to think that good ideas will spread because they're good, because their advantages are obvious. But that's not true. So why don't they? Or to put it another way, what is it about Rick Barry that allowed him to shoot this way? And what is it about Wilt Chamberlain and all the others that stands in their way? Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with the Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Imagine you're part of a typical American family in the 17 or 1800s. After a long winter, you'd find the inside of your home covered in a thick layer of soot. Your kerosene lamps and your coal or wood heating system would have rendered your home in desperate need of a vigorous cleaning. And thus began the annual ritual of spring cleaning, which also included the very important job of changing out your smelly straw mattress. And while your current mattress most likely isn't made of straw, there's still a good chance it needs replacing. You deserve a Sattva Luxury Mattress. 
Sattvas are meticulously handcrafted and include all the luxury features you'd expect from a high-end mattress. But because they're sold online, they cost a fraction of the price of retail. What's more, Sattva will set up your mattress in the room of your choice and take your old one at no extra charge. After all, you've got enough work ahead of you with all that spring cleaning to do. And now, save $200 on $1,000 or more at sattva.com slash gladwell. That's S-A-A-T-V-A dot com slash gladwell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was raised not to complain. I had one of those English stiff upper lip fathers. He carried his wounds and grievances on the inside. And I'm the same way. It's very hard to tell the difference between when I'm calm and happy and when I'm teetering on the edge. Is that good? Sometimes. It keeps things calm for my kids. But there are times when we have to share our burdens and enlist the help of others in making sense of our lives. That's where therapy comes in. A good therapist is someone who can walk with you and make that load on your shoulders a little lighter. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Gladwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Gladwell. Let me try out a theory on you. It's from a sociologist named Mark Granovetter. Granovetter is one of the greatest social theorists of his generation. If you're an academic groupie like I am, Granovetter is like James Dean. So Granovetter came up with something called the threshold model of collective behavior. He was trying to answer the question of why people do things out of character. He used riots as his big example. Why do otherwise law-abiding citizens suddenly throw rocks through windows? Before Granovetter came along, sociologists tried to explain that kind of puzzling behavior in terms of beliefs. So the thinking went, you and I have a set of beliefs, but when you throw the rock through the window, something powerful must have happened in the moment to change your beliefs. Something about the crowd transforms the way you think. Here's Granovetter explaining that idea. There was a lot of intellectual tradition that said that when people got into a crowd, uh, their independent judgment went out the window and that they somehow became creatures of the crowd uh, and that there was some kind of, I don't know, miasma of irrationality would settle over people and they would act in ways that they would never act if they were by themselves or they weren't influenced by the mob mentality. But Granovetter doesn't buy it. He doesn't think that being part of the mob casts some kind of spell that makes everyone irrational. To his mind, it's much more subtle and complicated than that. People are pretty much who they are, but if the situation develops in a certain way, then there's a domino effect. People, some people are activated, and that activates other people, and that activates other people, and it all happens so fast. Granovetter says that the issue isn't about people having beliefs about what's right and then suddenly losing those beliefs because they're in a mob. The issue is about thresholds. Now, what does Granovetter mean by that word threshold? A belief is an internal thing. It's a position we've taken in our head or in our heart. 
But unlike beliefs, thresholds are external. They're about peer pressure. Your threshold is the number of people who have to do something before you join in. Granovetter makes two crucial arguments. The first is that thresholds and beliefs sometimes overlap, but a lot of the time, they don't. When your teenage son is driving 100 miles an hour at midnight with three of his friends, it's not because he believes that driving 100 miles an hour is a good idea. In that moment, his beliefs are irrelevant. His behavior is guided by his threshold. An 18-year-old may be drunk at midnight in a car with three of his friends. That person has a really low threshold. It doesn't take a lot of encouragement to get him to do something stupid. Granovetter's second point is just as important. Everyone's threshold is different. There are plenty of radicals and troublemakers who might need only slight encouragement to throw that rock. Their threshold is really low. But think about your grandmother. She might well need her sister, her grandchildren, her neighbors, her friends from church, all of them to be throwing rocks before she would even dream of joining in. She's got a high threshold. The riot has to be going on for a very long time and has to involve a whole lot of people before Grandma will join in. Grandavetter's argument goes on in much more detail, all of it fascinating, and I encourage you, if you're interested, to look it up online and read it because it's beautifully clear. But for the moment, I just want to focus on the one big implication of Grandavetter's argument. What people believe isn't going to help you much if you want to understand why they try or don't try difficult or problematic or strange things. You have to understand the social context in which they're operating. Your grandmother's belief is that rioting is wrong, but there are times when even grandmothers might throw rocks through windows. Grandvetter's theory explained a lot of things that have been puzzling to me. So, here's a good example. It's from an interview I did at the 92nd Street Y in New York with the economist Richard Thaler, who's one of the leading lights in what's called behavioral economics. He had a book coming out called Misbehaving, and I really liked it, and we thought it would be fun if we did an event together. You and I have met before. The first time we met was at a hotel bar in Rochester. Yes. The only time I've ever talked Thaler's to the kind of guy who's interested in everything, including sports. And there was a point in our conversation when he started to talk about the fact that the owners of professional football teams do things on occasion that are really stupid and inexplicable. Take the professional football draft. For those of you who are not football fans, let me explain. Every year, all the draft-eligible college football players are thrown into a big pool, and the 32 professional football teams pick the players they want one by one. The first player taken is the one that people think will be the best professional player. That person gets the biggest salary. The second player taken is the one predicted to be the second best professional player, and so on. And after every team has picked one player each, they all start again and do another round. Because the players selected in the first round are considered the most valuable, all the teams fight over them. They pay enormous sums of money and construct elaborate deals to try and acquire those high draft picks. The interesting thing about that is there's a market for picks. So you can trade the first pick for, say, half a dozen second round picks. That's what the market says. Now, that implies that the first pick is five times more valuable than an early pick in the second round. 
Thaler and a colleague named Cade Massey decide to analyze this assumption. Was it really true that a first-round pick was worth half a dozen second-round picks? If you compute the surplus a player provides to his team, meaning how good his performance is minus how much you have to pay him, what we found is these second-round picks are actually more valuable than that first pick. But you could get five of those for that pick. It's the biggest anomaly I've ever found. The implication of Thaler and Massey's work is that teams should trade away their first-round picks. They should stockpile players in the second and third rounds who can be paid a lot less and are nearly as good. This is how you build a winning football team. So what was the reaction of NFL teams to Thaler's idea? Well, not long after he and Cade Massey did their research, they got a call from the Washington Redskins. It was early in Dan Snyder's tenure as owner, and I met him, and he said, oh, we didn't want to know about this. And he introduced me. He said, I'm going to send my people to see you. And they flew out to Chicago and met with Cade and me, and we told them what our findings were. And we basically have two pieces of advice. Trade down and lend picks this year for picks next year. With that last sentence, Thaler is referring to the second thing he and Massey discovered. Owners sometimes trade a pick in this year's draft for a pick in some future draft. They use a rule of thumb to figure out how to value the difference between a player you can use this year versus a draft pick you can't use until some future year. And Thaler and Massey discover that the rule of thumb makes no sense. It's completely irrational. It massively overvalues current picks and undervalues future picks. Like a good economist, Thaler talks about the value of that rule of thumb as an interest rate. It's like borrowing money. If you compute the real interest rate, it's 137% per year. In other words, for the privilege of having a player now as opposed to waiting a year, the owners pay a huge premium. They borrow money at 137% interest. These guys did not get to be billionaires borrowing at 137% per year, but that's the rule of thumb they use. So anyway, we taught his guys, Stan's guys, what to do, and then we watched the draft eagerly that year, and they traded up and borrowed a pick this year for one next year. So, okay. In other words... The Redskins did the exact opposite of what they should have done if they were rational. And they weren't the only ones. Thaler and Massey have consulted for three NFL franchises now, and no one has ever followed their advice. It gets worse. There's a very respected economist named David Romer who famously proved that football teams would win more games if they didn't punt, if they simply used all four downs to try and gain 10 yards, as opposed to giving the ball away to their opponents. So... Since Romer published his work, are NFL teams less likely to punt on fourth down? You guessed it. No. To tell you how big this is, if you did this right, what we, we think you would win one game a year more. If you also learned to go for it more often on fourth down, another game and a half. So just being smart, mm-hmm. you win at least two games a year on average. Two extra wins in a 16-game season just by acting a little bit differently. Who wouldn't do that? But nobody would. 
Now, is that because they're stupid? Because they have irrational beliefs? That was my first thought when I was listening to Thaler talk about his football research. Those dumb football owners. But that can't be right. You don't get to their level by being dumb. Surely this is about thresholds. Football owners and coaches are a small group of people. They all know each other. They've all done things a certain way for a long time. And doing things that way has made them a lot of money. They have a high threshold. These are a bunch of grandmothers. The only way any of them is going to change their behavior is if some radical goes first. And there are no radical owners in the NFL. There's just Richard Thaler, a geeky, middle-aged economist from the University of Chicago with a bunch of equations that you need a PhD to understand. There's some geek at every team who's read our paper. You know, think of the Jonah Hill character in the movie Moneyball, yeah. right? And nobody pays attention to that guy. Apparently, there aren't a lot of radicals in basketball either. Just the Barrys, and Chinano Onuwaku, the Nigerian-American who plays for Louisville. And, as it turns out, Mark Granovetter. When I was a teenager, and this would have been mostly in summer camp because I never really played basketball outside of summer camp, but I got to be very good at, at underhand free-throwing. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was, I, I could make almost every shot. I was wrong. There are three conditions under which someone will try this shot. One, if you're an offspring of Rick Barry. Two, if your family is from another continent. And three, if you're a world-famous sociologist. This, I think, gets us a little closer to the puzzle of Wilt Chamberlain. In his autobiography, he has this throwaway comment on the subject of shooting underhanded. Chamberlain wrote, I felt silly, like a sissy, shooting underhanded. I know I was wrong. I know some of the best foul shooters in history shot that way. Even now, the best one in the NBA, Rick Barry, shoots underhanded. I just couldn't do it. Two key things here. First, he writes, I know I was wrong. Just as Granovetta would say, it's not Chamberlain's beliefs that are getting in the way. He knows it's wrong. Then, I felt silly like a sissy. Remember the player for Columbia who described shooting underhanded as a granny shot? That's what Chamberlain's talking about. He doesn't want to look foolish. He's a high-threshold guy. He needs everyone to be doing something new before he's willing to join in. But Rick Barry? He's different. Rick Barry's dad comes to him when he's a junior in high school and says, you really ought to shoot underhanded. Rick's a pretty good free-throw shooter at that point, maybe 70% or so, but his dad tells him he can do better. And your initial reaction is, I don't want to do it. Right. Because it seemed to you like a... It's well, I can't do it. I mean, it's where the girl... I said, Dad, I always remember, and I tell people, Dad, they're going to make fun of me. That's the way the girls shoot. I can't do that. I said, son... And I remember this so clearly like it was yesterday. Son, they can't make fun of you if you're making them. And the first game I remember where I did it was on the road in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. I shot the free throw. Guy in the stands yells out, Hey, Barry, you big sissy, shooting like that. And the guy next to him, and I heard it very clearly, he said, What are you making fun of him for? He doesn't miss. So my dad's prophecy came true. And I was cool from that point forward. So I didn't care anymore what they said. If I'm making them, that's all that really matters. 
What's interesting is that Barry actually has the same initial reaction as Wilt Chamberlain. I'm going to look like a sissy. But he thinks about it, and he decides it doesn't bother him. Or rather, his drive to be a better shooter is stronger than his worry about what others think of him. That's exactly what it means to have a low threshold. The same mindset that can lead someone to do something bad, like a teenager driving drunk with very little encouragement, can also lead to brave or innovative behavior. If you have a threshold of zero, you're someone who doesn't need the support or the approval or the company of others to do what you think is right. Now here's the catch. The person who thinks this way is not always easy to be around. Barry was never embraced by his fellow players. There were a couple of notorious articles about him in the 1980s, full of quotes like this from a former teammate. If you'd got to know Rick, you'd realize what a good guy he was. But around the league, they thought of him as the most arrogant guy ever. Half the players disliked Rick, the other half hated him. Here's another quote. He lacks diplomacy. If they sent him to the UN, he'd end up starting World War III. Yeah, well, I was, I was about winning. I was about giving my best effort, and I had a very difficult time uh, accepting the fact. I wouldn't accept the fact if a teammate is not going to play his hardest. Barry's been out of the game for more than 30 years, but just talking about basketball made him tense. There was a right way to play the game, and when people didn't play it the right way, it drove him crazy. Watch a game, right? Guy shoots free throw, misses it. Everybody goes up, slaps his hand. What the, where the hell did that come from? I want to know who the guy is that got, that started doing that and who was the genius that said, man, that's a great idea. Let's go up and, you know, slap the guy's hand and let's go up to disturb his concentration when he's supposed to be focusing on shooting his free throws and worry about having to slap the hands of his teammates. Do you hear what upsets him? The social part of the game. Players paying attention to each other's feelings as opposed to their own performance. Plus the fact if he misses it, you should go up and smack him in the head for missing the free throw, not slap him on the hands and saying it's okay, because it's not okay. You just cost us a point. I mean, I, I go nuts when I watch this kind of stuff, and nobody even talks about that, and it's something that somebody brought up, somebody copied, and now everybody does it. And it's stupid. I, I just have a real problem with that. Barry wrote an autobiography in 1972 called Confessions of a Basketball Gypsy, which I have to say is one of the strangest autobiographies I've ever read. There are sections of the book Barry gives over to various people in his life. They each write a few pages, and he seems to care not one iota about what these people say about him. So here is his mother comparing Barry to his older brother, Dennis. Rick has become famous and made a lot of money, but what is that? I think maybe Dennis leads the better life. Or here's his dad defending him. There was an incident in Miami, for example, that was blown out of proportion. I have it on good authority that the player's jaw was broken when he hit the floor, not from Rick's punch. And this is his wife describing how they first met. He was awful to me. He was always shoving me in the pool, and I hated him for it. Oh, I could take it, but there's always someone who goes too far, who does it more than the others, beyond endurance, and for me, that was Rick. I would not let my parents and my wife say these things about me in my own autobiography. Yeah, I'd let people say what they wanted. I didn't ask for editorial rights to be able to go through and see what they said and see, oh, no, I don't want that in there. I'd let them say what they wanted to say. He doesn't care. The kind of person who would let bad things be said about him in his own autobiography is the kind of person who would shoot a free throw that other people think looks ridiculous.
I spent an afternoon with Barry at his condo. And I'd read all that stuff about him. Half the players disliked him, the other half hated him. And I kind of braced myself before I met him. But I liked him. Or maybe it makes more sense to say that I really admired him. Because I finally understood what someone like Rick Barry stands for. It's perfectionism. And what is a perfectionist? Someone who puts the responsibility of mastering the task at hand ahead of all social considerations. Who would rather be right than liked? And how can you be good at something complex? How can you reach your potential if you don't have a little bit of that inside you? I know we've really only been talking about basketball, which is just a game in the end. But the lesson here is much bigger than that. It takes courage to be good, social courage, to be honest with yourself, to do things the right way. Barry made me lunch, a perfectly delicious homemade vegetable soup with an avocado salad, simple, nutritious. When we finished, he cleaned up meticulously. He needed a ride into Charleston, so we got into my rental car. He turned off the heating, which had been on high because the weather had warmed up. He carefully took my rental agreement and tucked it into the sun visor. And then, when there was a sudden slowing of the traffic ahead and I braked a moment too late, I saw his foot come down in the passenger footwell as if he were braking for me. Only he braked just a fraction of a second before me because he's Rick Barry and he does things better than everyone else. And all the while he told stories from his basketball days, recalling shots and scores and things people said as if it were yesterday. I think he understands the price he's paid for being the way he is. It kept coming up. Everybody should have me as a friend. I'm a good friend. I'm a loyal friend. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be there if you need me. I mean, I'm a good friend. I'm a good person. I was brought up the right way. I'm a good person. Yet a lot of people don't think I am. He's not describing an easy life, but think of what he gained. Rick Barry was the best basketball player he could possibly have been. And Wilt Chamberlain could never say that. It's almost incomprehensible to me that someone could have that attitude to sacrifice their success over worrying about how somebody feels about you or says about you. That's... It's sad, really. You've been listening to Revisionist History. Sometimes the past deserves a second chance. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you rate us on iTunes. It helps a lot. You can find more information about this and other episodes at revisionisthistory.com or on your favorite podcast app. Our show is produced by Mia LaBelle, Roxanne Scott, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton. Music is composed by Luis Guerra and Taka Yazuzawa. Flan Williams is our engineer. Fact checker, Michelle Soraka. Thanks to the Panoply management team, Laura Mayer, Andy Bowers, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. So I used to joke with Wilt and 
God rest his soul, I got to know him well later in my life and, and said, you should have come to me with the, you had horrible technique, <laughs> you know, I could have helped you. Uh, Every week at Revisionist History, we revisit the past in hopes of better understanding the future. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a living archive of financial history. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years. Across those decades, he invented three new indices for the NASDAQ and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Mark says the majority of Americans are misunderstanding what the AI frenzy means for their money moving forward, with potentially dramatic and dangerous consequences. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will be impacted in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at StockTrend2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is StockTrend2024.com. That's StockTrend2024.com. You know, there's something about the Porsche way of doing things that just speaks to me. Take the all-new Porsche Panamera, for example. It's not just another sedan. It's a bold choice for those who aren't afraid to go against the flow, both with the car they choose to drive or the way they live their life. The Panamera redefines sports cars, comfortably seating four and proving that you don't have to sacrifice luxury for performance. Build your dream Panamera online right now at configurator.porsche.com and choose boldly. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through their day. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.